Okay, the parasha is um, Shoftim. All we're going to do is deal with the word. We're going to try to deal with the word, single word, in Hebrew. And that word is Tamim. Tamim. Which, uh, if you look in the dictionary, you'll see that the word Tamim uh, means something like whole, unblemished. Whole and unblemished. Now, you know, there's a problem with words. And that is, you know, there are two kinds of people. There are people who grew up uh, in the diaspora who don't know Hebrew. So they admit immediately that they don't know what the word means. Then the people who grew up in Israel, in Eretz Israel today, who speak Hebrew, and they immediately say that they know what the word means. And both of these people are exactly the same place. Uh, the ones who don't know what the word means, don't know what the word means. And the ones who do know what the word means, well, they think they know what the word means today, but they don't really know what the word means in the Torah. So let's see the context, and then we'll try to understand what the word means. The psukim that we're interested in, again, Moshe Rabbeinu is talking to B'nai Yisrael, and he says, Ki el ha'aretz. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu was sort of fixated on this coming to Eretz Yisrael, that everybody was going to come to Eretz Yisrael. Asher lach. You shouldn't do uh, the unsavory things that the nations in Eretz Yisrael do. Now these words are probably, you know, technical, have technical meanings. Like at the time of the Torah, everybody knew what a Ma'onein was, and what a menachesh was, and what a mechashesh was. The Gemara defines these. The Gemara defines these in uh, in different ways. Rashi Rashi explains. Rashi explains. If you look at the Rashi, you'll see uh, he goes through all of these various things. He says ma'avir benobi tovaish in pasuk yud he avodat hamolech. Like we've heard about the Molech before. Uh, that the service of the Molech was Ma'avir Benobi Tobaesh, you sacrificed your children. Osem Midurot Eish Mikano Mikan, Umaviro Bain Shtehem. They would build, this is what the Gemara says, they would build a fire on one side, a fire on the other side, and pass the children through the fires, which was not exactly such a healthy thing to do. What about Kosein Kisabim? In modern Hebrew, a Kosein is a magician. Of course, a magician is a person who fools us. And not a person who does anything real. Um, you know, it looks as though there's a bird that he just, like, sort of created in his hat. But actually, the bird was probably there all the time. Uh, so a Kosein is today someone who is able to fool us. Kosein Ksamim, Ezehu Kosein, Olchezet Maklova Omer, Imelech Imlo Elech. So Rashi says, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Rashi says, no, Kosein is something else. A Kosein is a person who has a divining rod, like a stick. They used to have these guys who walked around with sticks in Texas and Oklahoma. 
and they would like go like this, and then when the stick went down, you just dig a hole and get oil, right? That was called a divining rod, right? What? What's it called? A water. Who's into the water if you can get oil? I mean, you know, the differential in the prices are tremendous. So it says, it's, and that's what, so Rashi says, that's what a Kosein Ksamim is. That's what the Gemara says. But we've adopted that word in modern Hebrew to mean someone who fools us. What's, what they call in Hebrew, achizat enayim. Like, you know, your eyes don't move fast enough to figure out what's really going on. So that's, uh, that's what happens. Now, there we have, that's Kosein Ksamim. Now, what about the, the next pasuk, um, or this pasuk, Ma'onein Menachesh Mechashev, the last three. So, Ma'onein, Rashi says, Rabbi Akiva Omer, Elu Notznei Onots Sh'omrim Ona Plonit Yafel Hatchil. And these are people who are not interested in, like, water or oil specifics, but they sort of have general ideas. Yeah, this is a good time to go into business. So this is a good time. And these people, by the way, all exist today. I mean, it's not as though uh, we've come very far from this uh, Gemur, but uh, any of these specialties exist amongst um, certain kinds of religious people who have a kind of look to them and are willing to accept your, uh, your donation in exchange for uh, their advice which, I mean, is reasonable because they're selling a commodity, right? So they, but they're not willing to pay income tax. That they're not, even though they're selling a commodity, they don't look at it that way. They think that if they would pay income tax, then the persons who paid, his chalik in olam haba would be diminished. So why? They wouldn't want to do that. I mean... Uh, so, so this is what, so we have like in Israel is a veritable laboratory of uh, of this kind of stuff. If you're interested, if you like late hours and far off places, you can find out a lot of there are a lot of interesting things going on in this country. So that's a maonein. That's a maonein. And then a menachesh pitovna flamikiv svihiv sikobaderech. Like, like strange things happen and he explains them he tells you why they happen so you, know, you got them and you said like I fell off of a building and you know and uh, I only broke my leg but I lived so they'll explain to you why that happened that's very good then you have now these are really the these are a little tricky here is chover chever, chover chever, like the Hebrew word chever, chover, chaver, like to couple something together with something else is in there. Shemitzaref nechashim, o at rabim, snakes or scorpions, o shearchayot, you know, like general. The snakes and scorpions are like little, usually. I mean, there are big snakes, but there are also little snakes. Like he, he gets all these snakes together and I guess he talks to them and he, you know, they tell him things that other people don't know. Shoel Oviyid Oni. is very interesting. I'll tell you why in a minute. Shoel Ovzemach Shefot Sheshmo 
פתאום הוא מדבר משכיו ומעלת המת בבית השכי שלו. So this is a special kind of mechashefot, as we transmit as being magic. But when we say magic, we think it's nothing. But it sounds here like, they, like magic was not nothing. Magic was something real. It's like you could really do this. Now what could you really do with this magic? Uh, it's called pitom. You hear voices come from your armpits. And you, and you can have conversations with the departed. Like you go to this person and you say, look, I'd like to talk to my great-grandmother. I forgot to tell her something. She died 50 years ago. So, so, so for a fee, you make contact with the great-grandmother. And then you tell her whatever. Now, this is all, this, this problem of the Oviedoni, you know, is corroborated by the story of Shaul HaMelech, who actually did away with the Oviedoni in Eretz Yisrael, as he, the Torah, directed him to do. But at the end, tragically, he himself turns to this, uh, the witch of Eindor, right? The, uh, uh, this woman who then, you know, well, the continuation of the story. So which brings us to the problem of whether the Torah thinks that any of this stuff is real. Or, like the Torah says, don't be an idolater. Don't be an idolater because, uh, well, you know, there are all sorts of reasons not to be an idolater. But you would not think that one of the reasons for not being an idolater was because it works. And that's what the Torah means. But it would seem from the Psukim, if you include the Ovi Yidoni, about which we have separate evidence, that it sounds like the Ovi Yidoni, they're, like they're real. They can really do things. Like if you go there and ask a question, you're going to get an answer. And that answer is going to be real. It's not going to be, it's not going to be some, uh, some woman with a turban looking into a crystal ball, but it's going to be like a real communication with a dead, with a dead individual. So, if it's real, it's real because God either made it or allowed it to be. So, if God made it or allowed it to be, why, why shouldn't I take advantage of it? What, is the, well, what exactly is the issue? I understand that God doesn't want us to get too involved with, uh, with this kind of magic, let's say, let's say as though I understand. Uh, but it could be like the Ramam says about Korbanot, that, that the Kodesh Bochu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu enabled us to, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us to give Korbanot because that's what they did in the, um, in idolatry. Right? So it was important for us to have an outlet like that. We can say the same thing about, uh, about the Ovi Yidoni. I mean, there's something here that I'm, at some point, therefore, that I'm missing about the Ovi Yidoni. About all of these magicians, if they really work. And they're really true. You could say, look, if they didn't work, if they weren't true. Uh, so then uh, I would say, so why would, why would the Torah be so concerned about them? On the other hand, the other hand uh, you see today, these people have tremendous success, right? These people who work at this job in Eretz Israel, even though, to my mind, there's certainly nothing true about them. I mean, they don't know anything that, that I don't know. You know. They don't know any more about the weather than the weatherman. And the weatherman says they only know five days. 
That's what they know. They might know it, the weatherman. That's what they don't know any more than that. But it's very successful. It's a very successful enterprise. It's a very successful enterprise. So now it says here, also you can't beat them. You know, they've been beaten down by every... These people have been beaten down by all sorts of, like, non-religious Jews, religious Jews, great rabbis. They've all come out definitively against them. And they prosper. It's like, it's like that, that adage about, doesn't matter what you say about me as long as you say something. You know, like, uh, just write anything in the newspaper you want, that's fine. You know, just spell my name correctly. That's the way, that's the way this, this tends to grow. So what's a Yid-Oni? A Yid-Oni, Rashi says, Machnis etzem chaya sheshma yadua betoch piv ubedabeha etzem ayedei mechashay fut. You put some kind of a bone in your mouth and then the bone starts talking. All kinds of voices come out. And then, Doresh el is the last one in Pasuk, in Pasuk Yud Alev. Pasuk Yud Alev, Doresh el Ametim, Kigod HaMalev, is Churov, and Nishal Big Gul Golet. You're like, you know, you have this skull. You know, like skulls, you know, like a room full of skulls, and you say, excuse me. You know, they still do that. The monastery, you ever go to that monastery? On the way to Yericho, whatever it's called. No? What? Ah, that's right. I never could figure out who he was, but that's where it is. You go in there, they show you their proudest uh, possession is, like the skulls of all the people who died there. So I guess you can go in there and discuss matters with them if you're so inclined. And if you have, you know, maybe there's something to say. So that's what he says here in the Pesukim, that's what Rashi says. Now, Pesukim Bet says, Kol Kito Avat Hashem Kol Osei Eva. Torah takes a stand against all of this. Beglal to Avot Eva Hashem Elokecho Morish Otam Mipanech. But this takes care of another theological problem, you know, that, that, uh, that why uh, uh, we understand that God gave us Eretz Israel, but there was somebody living there. You may find this uh, um, somehow... Um, comparable to a modern-day question, but I do not mean in any way to be political. So, like, we came to Eretz Yisrael, we, God said, this belongs to you. I mean, it's in some kind of a, an inheritance. But for the last million years, these other people, nasty though they were, were living there. So how could we, how could we take it away from them? What did they do? So, uh, so uh, tradition, our tradition, the learning tradition, has worked very hard to, to indicate to us that they deserved it, that they deserved to be punished. Also, you know that when Yeshua ben Nun came upon a city, he offered them peace before he, he went to war with them, which uh, I think also indicates that there was this idea that even, even if you own something, like, uh, it's absolutely clear that you owned it, because God said it belongs to us. I mean, how could you have a better deal than that? Nevertheless, getting rid of the seven tribes, the seven nations in Canaan, who didn't know anything about the deal that God had made with us, is still a kind of a problem. I mean, you know, you can't just go in, apparently, and kill everybody who happens to be in the wrong place. They got their... Um, they got there in reasonable ways. So that the Pasuk says that God despises them 
because they perform all these activities. And the last pasuk in the section says, Tamim im Hashem I told you at the beginning that the word Tamim, even though it's a regular kind of Hebrew word that people use all the time, right? like a, a person is Tamim, he's naive, Tmimut is naivete, Tam is the word uh, of, uh, to be physically whole, right? to be unblemished, that's Tam. Even though it's a word that's used all the time, and we know that word as, you know, in modern Hebrew, still, what does it mean, the Torah mean, when it says, Tamim im Hashem Elokecha, especially following the psukim that we just learned. So we'll look at Rashi. Rashi says, Tamim im Hashem Elokecha, Hitalech mimut. Right, the Rashi says, Hitalech. That it's not a static verb. It doesn't describe a state of being. It's not, it's not like you are tamim, but be tamim. Etalech, etalech So, in other words, we now have a clear explanation of what tmimut is, and that is. It is, what is a lack of tmimut? What is a lack of being tamim? That somehow you want to get a leg up on the way God runs the world. You want to know, is it going to rain? Is there going to be a hurricane? Is there going to be a disaster? Are we going to win the war? Are we going to lose the war? Right? If I know that we're going to win the war, I'll stay. Right? That's, called, that's called a lack of tmimut. And Rashi says, Everything that happens to you, accept it right? as though that's the way it should be. That is the perfect way. And then you will be with God. So if I had to abstract this section of the Chumash, I would say perhaps as follows. What's going on in Eretz Israel? Idolatry. But here we have a description of a special aspect of idolatry. And that description of the special aspect of idolatry is lack of tmimut. That the people in Eretz Canaan, they want to be able to figure out what's going to happen. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen next year? And therefore, be able, based on this knowledge that they accrue, they would be able to beat it. To beat the ongoing history of the world. There be no surprises. That's a lack of tmimut. What does HaKadosh Baruch want of us? Don't concern yourself with these things. Act as though everything, or, or take it, and, and you should know that whatever happens to you is what has to be, and that's the way it should be, and that's what God wants it to be, and that will be the end of, that's the end of the discussion for you. So that's Tmimut versus the lack of Tmimut in Eretz Kinnaan. That's what the, these Psukim uh, uh, say. Now if I ask you, except for the Oven Yidoni, uh, does it work? Like, does the lack of tmimut work? Do they know what's going to happen? So, we don't really have a clear statement. Let's see what the Parshanut uh, says. Parshanut, uh, 
Of course, the Pashtun is much later than the Torah, right? You're talking about uh, 2,300 years later. The Pashtunut, but the Pashtunut represents the sum total of the tradition of understanding. Right, so what is... We'll look first at the Rashbab. We saw Rashi. Let's see what the Rashbab says. The Rashbab says, Tamim tiyeh, umimenu tidrosh, v'lo min hameti. And then you should, you if you are tamim, he adds another dimension. He says a person who is tamim will turn to God. In other words, will, will look to God to save him, to help him, to cure him. That's tamim tiyeh. And he won't go to these other sources like the dead. The Rosh is easily formed to get an answer to a question. Who? The word Right. Ah, the the I I don't know. Maybe you're right. But you should do it, you mean. But it seems to run contrary to the whole section of the Chumash. It's hard to imagine that's what the... Uh, that's what the Rashbam meant. And I, as far as the word is concerned, you're probably right. Since everything bad that happens to us should be seen as a nisayon, as a test, and therefore, therefore, life, the way you live is a test. How are you supposed to live? You're supposed to live without knowing what's going to be. Because that way you, can, you accept the turn of events as being part of the Nisayon that we have all the time. Uh, but if you return to the, to the uh, Sirim, if you use the, the, these goats in order to tell the future, um, so it sounds like from the, from the Rajbam that these other forces actually work. That you can, that it's a choice. It's a free, like in the world, in the world there are a lot of things that are going on and a lot of people or things you could do in order to find out the future. But it's a test of us, not because it doesn't work, but because God wants you to stay away from it. This is not for you. I mean, after life is about something else. Life is not about beating it. Life is about dealing with it. Being able to take the good, being able to take the bad, being able to deal with it. That's what life is, and don't try to beat it. And even if you find a way of uh, beating it on some level at some time, that's not what the Torah wants you to do. So that's the Rashbah. Okay. Uh, I, I put down the Bala Turim because it's very interesting. You know, the Bala Turim is uh, as found in many editions of the um, of the Mikraot Gedolot. When I was a kid, well, I was a kid. If you bought a Mikraot Gedolot, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, they would usually print what they called Ikar Bala Turim. Ikar Balaturim, which means the essential Balaturim. And it never even occurred to me, I remember as a kid, that 
I, I, I never asked any of my teachers, I mean, what does this mean? I mean, how do you figure out what the Ikar Balaturim was? I thought that they didn't have enough space on the page. And therefore, they had to shorten something. So they shortened the Balaturim. Anyway, who learned the Balaturim? I mean, it was like... Uh, so it, to, to me, it made sense that the Balaturim was given less space and that uh, there's only a little of the Balaturim, but it never looked at the Balaturim anyway. So what difference did it make? But years later, I discovered, I discovered, I did discover it. I mean, I looked, I looked at a book which wrote it uh, very clearly, but I discovered that the Balaturim is a parish of the Misora. It's a parish on the Misora. You know that the Misora is a word that describes the enterprise of the Jewish people in, let's say, the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries CE where in order to make sure that they would be able to get accurate copies of a Sefer Torah, like today, they put the Sefer Torah into a computer. And the computer is helpful. The computer doesn't solve the problem, but the computer is helpful for uh, Malay and Chaser, right? An added vulva, a missing vulva. The computer is good at that. But other kinds of mistakes, the computer is still too stupid to figure out. But someday the computer will have everything figured out. Someday we'll all be computers. You know, there won't be any, won't be a shyler of whether you could write a secretary with a computer because we will be computers, right? The children will have little operations where they'll put in like a chip. And as you, uh, as the technology improves, they'll take it out and put in another one. And, you know, that's how it'll, that's how it'll work. So in those days, in order to make sure that the people who copied the Sefer Torah copied them correctly, copied the Sefer how do you do that? How do you make sure that the Sefer is going to copy correctly? And you're talking about people all over the Jewish world. And you know that when Ezra came back to Eretz Yisrael, Ezra, Ezra is called HaSofer. Ezra HaSofer is called Ezra HaSofer because he was a Sofer. And when he came back to Eretz Yisrael, he discovered... You know, all the communities, all the people, not so many people came back. It was like, you know, one of those regular Jewish tragic stories where people could come back, but they didn't want to sleep in caravans. So they said they'd wait until they would build them big houses. So they stayed in uh, Persia, in the Persian Empire, and they disappeared. Right? You know, they were in big houses, but they disappeared in Persia. And the people who came were willing to live in caravans ended up living in big houses in Eretz Israel. They did not disappear. They did not disappear. But all the people who came back to Eretz Israel, you know, as Jews, you know, like I saw, I saw the news yesterday that there was a nefesh benefesh uh, plane load of people, you know, who like they, it seems like they pay them an extra few dollars to look happy <laughs> when they come, you know, like they just... Well, they're happy about it. I mean, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing, but they're like all singing and dancing. Of course, there's a guy there carrying a Sefer Torah, you know, dancing around with a Sefer Torah. So I checked the calendar. It was definitely not Simchat Torah yesterday. But this is, was, this is a Jewish thing. You have a Sefer Torah, you bring it with you. If, you. if your whole shul comes in Aliyah, you bring the Sefer Torah. That's what they did in the time of Ezra. So people came from all over Persia, back to Eretz Israel, each community carrying a Sefer Torah, and it was much to Ezra's surprise and maybe um, uh, unhappy uh, discovery 
that there were a lot of differences in the way the Sifrei Torah were written. Because there was no good control on how the Sefer Torah would be. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, you may remember that there were Sifrei, there were three Sifrei Torah that were considered to be the perfect examples of Sefer Torah in the Beit HaMikdash. And when there arose a problem about how to write the Sefer Torah, talk about the Sefer Torah that's in the Aaron Kodesh. Not talking about a mystery. Talk about the Sefer Torah that we read from every Shabbos. For some of us, Mondays and Thursdays. Others of us, even sometimes on a, on a uh, Friday morning. But uh, tomorrow, I mean. So, uh, so there were mistakes in the Sifrei Torah. And there was after the Chorban Bayit Rishon, so he didn't have the three Sfarim to check with. And so it turned, it, the, the world turned to Ezra Sofer to, uh, to make this decision, to decide what a Sefer Torah should look like. And that's what he did. He wasn't a scribe. Ezra was not a scribe. Ezra was the scribe. Because what he decided at that time was the Sefer Torah. Now that was in the year he came back to Eretz Yisrael in the year 535 BCE. And from that time, it was a little easier for the Jewish people because they were concentrated for a long time in one place, or one place, in Eretz Yisrael, mostly around Yerushalayim, some of them in the Galil, but it was possible to check what was happening. But by the 8th century CE, there were Jews again living all over the world, writing Sifrei Torah, without a good system of, of uh, making sure that the copying would be, would be correct. So what they did, the Baalei HaMesorah, they developed this kind of, um, like a group of people. Group of people, certain type of, like a certain type of person can do this, like an accountant, you know, can do this. They, they started counting the words. And they would count how many words were there in the parasha of Shoftim. And so that if you just count the words in the parasha, which was not an insurmountable ta- uh, uh, task, you would have a rough idea of whether you would copy correctly. And then they had another idea. And they said every time a word in the Torah is spelled in a non-conventional way, conventional means most of the time it's spelled one way, and some of the time it's spelled another way, they would make a little note. So you know in the Chumash, very, it's very often, especially in the book of Vayikra, the words, the words spelled hey vav aleph, hey vav aleph is red he. So now if you're a poor scribe, and you're reading the Pasuk, and they say, and you read it here, everybody should read it here. Now it says, you look at the, at the, the Chumash you're copying from, it says, hey vav aleph. So of course, I mean, if you're a reasonable person, you're going to say that the mistake is in the Chumash you're copying from. Everybody knows that he, I mean, it's not a tricky word. He is hey you olive, it's not hey blah blah. So they made a little note on the side of their chumashim. And the note said, this is one of the 37 places in the Torah where the word he, hey you olive, is spelled hey blah olive. And then this literature grew. Everybody had a different idea of how to do it. They did it for the consonants. 
and they did it for the vowels. That means they said, uh, usually this word is spelled in a certain way, but here it's spelled differently. And they, other times they would say, usually the word is vocalized this way, but in this case it, it, it's vocalized differently. They had this tremendous literature. That's called Misora. That's called Misora. Who exactly the Balei Misora? Well, we don't know. We know but Ben Asher, Ben Naftali. Remember there was this Sefer Torah that was in Aleppo. You know Aleppo? And that Sefer Torah is called the Aleppo Codex. That's what it's called. Why is it called the Codex? Because at that time, Bible scholars in, um, in Yerushalayim didn't like to use religious terminology. So they thought if they said it in Latin, they could, they would be, feel better. So they, but really what it is, it's not a Sefer Torah, it's a Tanakh, it's a handwritten Tanakh. It started from Breshit until the end of Devayim in Bet, and it has, it has complete, vo- uh, uh, it's completely vocalized, and it has Ta'amea Mikra, the accentuation marks that you read with. That's called the Aleppo, and that's called the Aleppo Codex, and that might be the Sefer Torah that the Rambam used in order to determine what the correct parashiyot was, but that's a different story. The story of the Aleppo Codex is that there was a president in the state of Israel who was interested in these things. His name was Ben Svi. Right? Yitzhak Ben Svi. It's not true that there was only an institution, but really there was a man. And when he died, they named the institution the Ben Svi Institution. So he was interested in what they called in those days Shratim. Uh, tribes. He was interested in Jews who came from different places. And he knew that there was a, that this Sefer, Sefer, it wasn't a Sefer Torah, it was a Tanakh, was found in this shul in Aleppo. And uh, uh, there was a professor in the Hebrew University, a professor of Bible, his name was Hartum. Oh, I'm sorry, his name was Kasuto. His name was Kasuto. He was from, he was an Italian, he was a rabbi in Italian. Kid Italy, he came to Israel and he taught, he taught Bible. He wrote an interesting book on uh, the documentary hypothesis, which was once uh, like a big deal. Maybe still, I don't know. And the book is called, strangely enough, The Documentary Hypothesis. And he himself was allowed to go to, um, to uh, Syria to Aleppo, and he, in his notebook, he copied out all the things he thought were interesting. You know, the differences in, in, in uh, consonants, differences in vowels. It was mostly vowels, mostly vowels. The, the vocalization system is interesting. That's not why I'm telling you this story. I'm telling you the story because Ben Sri, when the state of Israel was about to be declared, Ben Sri realized that this would not be good for the Jews outside of Eretz Israel. He didn't know it would be good for the Jews in Eretz Israel, but it certainly was not going to be good for the Jews outside of Eretz Israel. So they begged the people in Aleppo, the Syrian Jews, to send the Aleppo Codex to Yerushalayim, where it would be protected. The Syrian Jews, of course, said, they said, we can't do that because then we won't be protected. Who's going to protect us? So naturally, the Arabs, Syrian Arabs, burnt down the shul, or burnt up the shul, whichever it is the shuls do. 
and the Aleppo Codex was burnt. You see, it's a scroll. It's like just one rat, one, like one scroll. It burnt till Hazina. It burnt till Hazina. And that therefore, and then it was, then they brought it to Yerushalayim. They said, look, it didn't do us any good. Let them have it in Yerushalayim. So, so we have it in Yerushalayim, but only starting from, starting from Hazina. And that uh, um, uh, codex, that Torah, represents a very old tradition, a very well-worked-out tradition of vocalization and parashiot and also the consonants. So that's what, why am I telling you all of this? So I wanted to tell you what Misora was. What Misora was. Now, if you look at, a, at, at many editions of the Mikraot Gedolot, the old editions, in the margins, there's a margin usually between the text of the Chumash and the text of the Targum or the text of Rashi. And in the margin, you have a lot of things that you never read. You look at them, they're printed in very small letters, and they don't look interesting. And it looks like something you'd find on a Ouija board someplace. Like it's the, you, you absolutely ignore it. And because, because our children have absolutely no curiosity about anything Jewish, no one has ever asked me what that is. Never. Well, I mean, it's in every, it's in every Mikrod Gidolog. No one has ever asked me what it is. And therefore, I always tell them what it is. But no one ever asks. So, so the, those are Masoretic comments that the printer decided with whoever it was the editor to put in thinking he was like it's an extra bonus. You know, he tried to sell a few more books because there's Masoret in it. So now we get to the Balaturim and the Ikar of the Balaturim. The Balaturim, remember the Balaturim is the son of the Rosh, a great Talmud Chacham. And he came up with this curious idea that he would write a commentary on the Chumash based on the Masoretic comments. So if the Masoretic comment says, this word, spelled in this way, with this vocalization, appears twice in the whole Tanakh, what did the Balaturim do? He said, oh, not only that, there's a connection between these two appearances of the word in the Tanakh. You understand? It's a little mystical, but it certainly demands a lot of ingenuity. But you understand? So now usually, usually when you read the Balaturim, you didn't understand how he made the connection. So they do in the Ica Balaturim, they just erased that. And they just left in what he said. So of course, since they just left in what he said and not how he got there, no one could understand what it said anymore because there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I say this all by introduction, or oh, it's like a long introduction to this Balaturim. You see the Balaturim says about the word Tamim? Taf Gidola. Taf Gidola. Taf is the letter Taf. And Gidola is the, it means a big. A big. And you know that sometimes in the Torah, there are letters that are written bigger. Bigger. It has in Ha. There are times when you write a word bigger. This pasuk is not one of those times, as far as we know. So the Minchat Shai, which was a commentary, like the tour is a commentary on the on the Mesorah, so the Minchat Shai is also a commentary on the Mesorah. So the Minchat Shai says this. He says, look, uh, 
The Basara says that it's a big top. And the Balaturim says that it has a, it means something. But I tell you that I never saw this in my life. I never saw a big top. Eshkol is printed. The 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 Mecha Shai lived before printing. No, no, I'm sure it doesn't have it. But even if it did have it, we wouldn't care because what does Eshkol know? But they they don't know anything. Yeah, they, it's like you know. He does say, the Mecha Shai says that there are certain Svartic manuscripts. Manuscripts means they're not safe for Sifre Torah. They're handwritten, in which they, they, they have a big tough. But there are no Sifre Torah that have a big tough at this place. So look at the Balaturim. And the Balaturim says, Tavkidola, Tavkidola. The Balaturim doesn't care. Why does the Balaturim care? Because he's a commentary on what the Messiah says. And if the Messiah says Tav Gidolah, it doesn't matter if there's a Tav Gidolah or not. It only matters that they say it. And so why do they say it? This is what, what he says. He says, She'im te'lech bitmimut. That if you act bitmimut, ki'ilu kiyamta me'alavata that this principle is such a strong principle that a person who acts bitmimut, it's as though he did everything. Even though he didn't do everything. And no one does everything. But that's, it's not just, tmimut is not just an add-on. Do the taryag mitzvot and also be tamim. But if you are tamim, then it's as though you did the taryag mitzvot. That's what, that's what the uh, Balaturim says. So there's a long introduction, a long story about the Balaturim, but we still don't know the answer to our question. So let's look at the, at the Ramban. The Ramban says, Tam tabim tiyem Hashem elokecho, sheniachei levado elav levado. Right? This is already a different kind of statement. We should, our hearts should be turned uniquely to God. Only God knows the truth about the future. And it's while it may be true that these other guys seem to know, only God really knows. Uh, and it's only to God that we can ask for information about the future. And he says, it's true that the future, there's an organized way for us to ask about the future, and that organized way is Urim Vitumim and Nevi'im. Right? It has all of these things in the Psukim. All those things are replaced for Am Yisrael by Nevi'im and by Urim Vitumim. We should not ask for most people who know about the heavens. And we should not be dependent on what they said. If we hear a prediction from one of these guys, we should say, no, no, everything belongs to God. God is in charge of the whole works. Right? 
Mefer otot badim kusvim yolah. So you could say according to the Ramban, and this is true because we know the Ramban says it in many other places, that there is some sort of a ma'arechet. There is some sort of a cosmic uh, 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 machine which if you hook into it, you could find out things that you wouldn't know otherwise. But you should avoid that. Because really the complete information and the complete uh, uh, control of the future is in God's hands. And since it's in God's hands, you should stick to that direction. And it'll end of the first long line. And that everything will happen in the future. Uh, the future is our responsibility in that if we're good and we do what we're supposed to be, the future will likewise be good for us. Mefikach, achar azharat sheilat ha'atidot mikosein v'doresh v'ad achayim elamitim amar shetiyet hamim in Hashem b'kol eila. And that's what the pasuk means when it says tamim. Lo tirami magid atid. Don't be afraid of what one of these guys says. Aval minvi otidrosh they love Tishma, but you should only go to an official, authentic prophet. So that uh, it would seem from the Ramban, you have to think about it. It seems from the Ramban is look, this desire that people have to know about the future is kind of unquenchable. And if the only way I'm going to find out about the future is to go to one of these magicians or somebody with a crystal ball, I mean, I'm going to go. So that the Torah gives us Nevi'in. To be able to, to confine that interest and that interest that we have in the direction of God. So that's what the Rambam says. If you look uh, at the Rambam, and just to go quickly because I want to get to, to the Rav Nosa. Halacha Tetzai, you see the Rambam, the Rambam, the Rambam had a position about all these things mentioned in the Psukim. They are all Sheker, they are all lies. And this is all a kind of a kanunya that, uh, that the ancients created in order to be able to lead their people. This is uh, uh, like as rabbinistic a statement as you could ever find. First of all, he, he, it's a question of chokhmah. I mean, we after all are chachamim. We learn the Torah. We, we should be able to make a clear decision. So people who are chachamim should stay away from all of this stuff. That's what the Rambam, that's what the Rambam says. And then he goes on, he says, You can go through the whole Rambam, the Chazaka, and see the number of places he contrasts Chachamim and Schalim. Right? There are people who are clever, and that's us, that we're not are clever, but we have to act in a clever way. And if we don't act in a clever way, then we are schalim. And so what the Ramam is saying, what the Ramam is saying is that if you follow these diviners, 
fortune tellers, future augurs, if you follow them, then you're just a fool, because everybody understands that there's no truth to them. And then finally the Rambam says, three lines of the Bama, those are like like words that represent ultimate nothingness. Like they have no value, no value at all. Havel, havalim. I guess the breath that comes out of your mouth when you breathe. Something has absolutely no value at all. He says, shenim uh, and the Rambam can't even explain to us why his way is better than the other way because he says, look, anybody with, with, with a little intelligence agrees with me. I mean, it's like, not the kind of argument that is appreciated in all circles. And if you don't agree with me, then you're a fool. Uh, okay, that's what the Rambam says. He says, uh, According to the Rambam, the word tamim means wisdom. It's kind of wisdom that you have. You have to apply wisdom to the situation. You can't just say, you can't say like people say, you know, uh, who are in that bad situation and uh, they do something that they themselves think is, is worthless. They say, well, who knows? Well, maybe it'll help. But the Rambam didn't like that. Even the Rambam of other places as well talks about Kameyas and talks about, you know, these amulets. The Rambam didn't like any of that. The Rambam was a scientist. If there was proof that something was helpful, he didn't go for the uh, placebo effect, even though the Rambam said it. He said, if a person wears an amulet because he thinks, somebody's sick, and he wears the amulet because he thinks it'll help him get better, so the Rambam said it's allowed. It's allowed, even though it doesn't work doesn't do anything, but it's, again, what we call today the placebo effect. So here you have an interesting, an interesting uh, uh, group of uh, uh, information. There's information about Tamim. There seems to be an argument amongst the Rishonim about whether there really are forces out there that we could use in order to turn with the future, and if there are, should we? And if we shouldn't, why shouldn't we? I mean, what's the, what's the exact issue here? For the Rambam, the whole problem is really quite simple, because there are no powers out there. There is no other way to find out the future. And it's just that sometimes it's a human weakness, so there are situations where we let you pander to yourself, but there's no doubt that there's nothing to the whole thing. The Ramban, on the other hand, is the one who says, that there probably is something to it, and the Torah demands from us that we ignore that path and stick with the Nevi'im and the uh, and the Urim Vitumim. Excuse me, to Oh, either that, or what would a modern-day Bible scholar who didn't believe that this really happened say? What? A vision. It was like a madness. Uh, he was a bit mad at the end of his life. I mean, it's not that. Not that. It's not a kasha. You know. You know what I mean? Uh, 
because we don't know what happened. You don't know what happened with the Witcher main door. Since we have, since we're very clever about psychology and uh, and options of that, you know, in, in psychology. So we'll say, well, you know, people have visions all the time, and it's not that. And people uh, uh, um, react to them, and they tell the story of their visions. Uh, again and again and again, absolutely, it's absolutely, in, in fact, in fact, sometimes visions are, um, are the method, there's like a, a method, so that when the, when the Satmar Hasidim, well, here, when the Ravarel Hasidim, since we're talking about, they're very, uh, they've been popular uh, recently, so you know that, that uh, when the previous Rebbe died, there was a Rebbe. His name was Aaron Khan. He was a very, uh, what? I don't hear. Yeah, he told the Aaron, the Rabbi He told the Aaron had a Rebbe. Actually, they had two, but one was big, and the other was very small and, and hardly noticed. So this very big Rebbe died. The Rebbe in charge of all the Hasidim died. And then um, he appointed his youngest son in his will. He appointed his youngest son as the, who was apparently more, uh, I don't know, more talented. More, I don't know what. Uh, appointed his youngest son as the um, next Rebbe, which is what happened. But the oldest son thought he was looking and losing out on a, uh, on a good professional option. So he had a, um, a dream in which his mother, or his mother had a dream, I'm going to get straight the story, his mother had a dream in which her husband, the dead Rebbe, came to her and said, no, no, it's a mistake, I really meant the older should be the Rebbe. And so this caused a split. As a result, there are now two Rebbe's, each of them, um, you know, followed by some number of Hasidim. And uh, so visions are, are like good, they're handy, even today, right? No one, no one went to say to her, did you take a video of this vision? You know, or the, do you have some kind of vision proof? Uh, they just they believed her, you know, or they didn't believe her. But they, you couldn't actually discuss it much. But that caused the two Rebbe situation, yeah? What? Okay, so you were saying another Terence. You're saying, oh, not only, not only is a vision not something too reasonable, but he just talked to her, right? There was like this smoke, and he was talking to, talking to the smoke. Okay, I want to tell you what Rav Nosson says. What Rav Nosson says is what Rav Nachman says. You know his background, everybody knows that Rav Nachman did not like the Rambam. Didn't like the Rambam. In fact, he didn't like him with great intensity because the, the Rambam said that we should think about things that Rambam Nachman thought you should not think about. I mean, if I say it that way, I think that that is... There is the Gnor Nebuchim for Rav Nachman is a book of Kfira. It's a book of Kfira because it directs you to think about things that you should not think about. And the reason you shouldn't think about them is because you can't. We have to know what the limits of our capacity to think about things is. Now look at Rav Nosser. 
So four Rav Nachman of Ratzler and four Rav Nassim is explaining him. Right? You have to understand that the operative word that makes a Jew into a Jew is emunah. Emunah. Not the emunah that they say today in the seminarium for girls. Not that emunah. Emunah. Meaning something that's unmeasurable and unknowable. Like something that if you have it, you have it. And he says that's where it all starts from. That's not where it goes to and ends, but it begins from emunah. Ikara shleimut. Shleimut means that's good, it's a positive word. Rak emunah levad. tmimut. And therefore, tamim tiyem, Hashem elokecha means you have to believe in God. How do you believe in God? No questions. There's no questions. There's no doubt. There's no, there's never a kasha. Because a kasha means you understand something. But a kasha means that you have some, some knowledge. I, I mean, like you could say, let's say there's, a, there's this, these, these birds, these chasidot. They're going from, they're going north now, right? They're going back to Europe. That's, that's where they're going. They're going back to Europe. So you say one, you see one chasidah decided not to go. Is moving into a tree or under a tree someplace in the Hula Valley. So you say to that Hasida, what's wrong with you? Why did you go to Europe? Because you know that that's what they're supposed to do. But when it comes to God, you don't know. You can't have a kasha on God. It isn't God, how come I'm poor or how come I'm rich? Because that implies, that implies that you know something about what should be. And since you don't know anything about what should be, so you have no kasha. You never have a kasha. So the, the, that's Rav Nachman. I mean, it's like a, a tough idea. This is not a simple idea. I mean, it's simple enough to say, but it's a little hard to, uh, to absorb. So he says, mm-hmm. In other words, the kalim that we have to hop information or to relate to an event or to see something in the world don't apply to emunah. They don't apply to that word. So the only way to penetrate Torah is through emunah, not through knowledge. Knowledge is limited, and, or the ability to create knowledge. It really is to categorize things. They really, to do what halacha does is, is limited. There is nothing that you get. And this could be also the situation of why it is that the halacha never changes the raw material. It was the Shulchan Aruch did not put the Gemara out of business, if you know what I mean. Because we go back to the Gemara because we understand that when we measure something or we decide something, it's only an option, so to speak. I mean, it's something you have to do because we have to have a halacha. But it doesn't mean that we've knocked the other part of business. We passed it like Beit Shammai against Beit Hillel. It doesn't mean that we did away with Beit Shammai. 
had we done away with Beit Shammai, then they wouldn't even appear. After all, the Mishnah itself says that we vote like Beit, we voted like Beit Hillel. So how come Beit Shammai is still around? Because we understand that voting is limited, that understanding is limited, and therefore the positions continue to kind of reverberate in our mind's eye. That's God. Right? Filthy gavul is like infinity. God is infinity. What is infinity? Emunah. Emunah is infinity. So the way you can connect to infinity is through the only quality that we have, which is infinite, and that is emunah. Filthy gavul. Kiu ma'amim ba'emet. Shu od ein sof al pi she'i efshal ha'sigo b'dat b'shum ofen. So you see that according to Rav Nosson, I mean, it's already... Time for me to stop, but I'll just say one sentence. According to Rav Nelson, according to Rav Nathan the Bratzlev, this is how it is. Any attempt to harness God and to force heaven to give me information which would change the way my life will be is a lack of emunah. That's a, that's a lack of emunah. So Rav Nosen says pshat like Rashi. Rashi says, Tomim t'yeva shevelokecha. Look at the Rashi. Look at Rashi quickly. Tomim t'yeva shevelokecha. Ithalechi mo bitmimut. Uthitzapelo. Velo tachkor achar ha'atidot. What do you mean, lo tachkor achar ha'atidot? Why shouldn't I look into the future? Because... That's something measurable. That's something knowable. He says, I say, God, I don't want you to be God. I want you to tell me what's going to be tomorrow. I want you to be, I want to relate to God in this kind of limited way. I want to put a limit on my relationship. What's the limit? Tomorrow. Is it going to rain? Are my stocks going to go up? That's called, that's called, uh, that is called Ma'omein, Menachesh, Chover Chaver. All of that is using the notion of God and relating it to a limit, up to here, a certain point. And therefore, that person who goes through those avenues to determine something about his own life, that person is changing the definition of God. And by changing the definition of God from ensof, from infinite to right now, what's going to be, what's going to happen, that creates a lack of emunah in itself. But that creates a personality that becomes incapable of faith, of emunah. Because emunah is in its essence a reflection on the infinity of God and not on the finite nature of God. So that Tomim Tiyem Hashem Elokecho means that your relationship to God is beyond the moment. And if you make the moment 
the ikar, the the main thing in your relationship. Like, oh, if you God, you tell me what's going to be, and I'll be able to win the the lottery. Then I will be good to God and build God a nice building in my neighborhood. That is, according to Rav Nelson, an expression of a lack of faith. It's not only a lack of faith, but it creates a person who's incapable of faith. Because faith means being able to look upon God as God really is. And God really is the infinite God, and not the God of how things are going to be. Have a good Shabbos. Kubal? Oh, today? No, well, it's a business. You know, their family, their family, some people sell tomatoes, and some people sell Same family, what? Uh, I guess. But certainly, I don't know, you know, that if I would use that word, but I would certainly not be able to find a complimentary word. I would not be able.